Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Die Living Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Die Living Podcast brought to you by Softlead. Today, we are joined by Colonel Andy Milburn, uh, whose new book, When the Tempest Gathers, uh, is recently out. We're going to be talking to him today. Andy has a pretty interesting background, including three decades of service with the Marine Corps, uh, which took him from Mogadishu to the war against ISIS. Uh, Andy was raised in England, enlisted in the Marines after getting his university degree at the age of 24, uh, after coming back across the Atlantic to the, the new, the new Republic. The if, colonies. If we want to call it that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, after, Benedict Arnold in reverse. Right. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> let's see, Andy has held command and staff billets with fifth Marines, seventh Marines and 3rd Marines, where he commanded the 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines. Uh, he's held key advisor posts in Iraq as well. Uh, his time under fire has included Mogadishu, Somalia, the march up to Baghdad in 2003, Fallujah, Karma, Libya, and Mosul, uh, where he led Marine Raiders in the fight against ISIS. So if that is uh, not enough of an introduction, thank you very much for coming to join us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, we're looking forward to chatting with you about about the book and a lot of other stuff. Because great, yeah, Aaron, Doug, great, great pleasure to be here. And I've got to say, you know, it's a, it's a shame we don't have cameras here because the uh, the the warehouse that you guys have set up, and you really you should make a YouTube video just showing showing people around it. It's like the Snoop Doggy Dog, you know, uh, welcome Cribs to my crib. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I describe it as a, a you know, a, a retired soft dude's wet dream. Wow. Is, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on a podcast, we, but it's probably too late. I suspect that you will be more proper than anyone who's ever been on this podcast. Okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> don't bet on it. And Aaron and I uh, have recently discovered the joys of a of a spinoff podcast called Bottom of the Barrel, where we literally race Spin each other yeah. to the worst things we can possibly say. I feel like I'm <laughs> winning that one. Yeah, it's very popular. And um, on the last episode, he suggested that on our trip to Japan, we uh, wear matching T-shirts that say Fat Man and Little Boy on them. Which, great one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now I understand the name of the show. Right. There you go. So, yeah, this place is... Uh, I feel like it's just a collection of stuff that our wives won't let us keep in the house. That's and a great so, way to describe it. Yeah. yeah. Especially the uh, the Burt Reynolds bear rug <laughs> yeah. hanging right. on the sofa. That's actually, and a rather uh, disturbing photo that you showed me beforehand that I'm glad right now right. you cannot share with your it, listeners. Eternally embarrassing my teenage daughter. Yeah. <laughs> So, but enough about that. Uh, thank you very much for coming again. And really to kick it off, I mean, like, why write a book? You know, what was the what was the impetus behind, hey, I've got a story to tell. You're not a Navy SEAL, so. That is, yeah, that's a great point. So, Aaron, I'm, I'm going to begin this with the usual cliche that people start a interview with. Where Aaron, yeah. that's a great question. <laughs> but, it, but it really is. And I'm not saying that because I find it difficult to answer. I actually find it. 
I find it quite easy to answer. Mm -hmm. And for those of us and by us, although I'm a Marine and you guys are Army guys and there's no need to apologize for that, (laughs) but we share, you know, we share kind of a common culture, right? And part of that culture is a healthy distrust of self-promotion. Again, we're not. Well, we've been shamed our entire lives. That's right. (laughs) You know, so, I mean, it's about the collective, right? It's about the unit. It's not about you. So, so After 30 breaking, years of selfless service, you still haven't done shit, Andy. Yeah. So, bre- <laughs> you know, breaking from that and writing a book is a significant departure. But I will say this, and this isn't me being on the defense. I, I for, for me, this was, this was kind of a, a – uh, uh, it, it was a um, cathartic act. True. I, I came back from my last deployment, 2016. Uh, I had been through a family tragedy. I'd lost my daughter before, shortly before the deployment. Sorry to hear that. Uh, and then the deployment itself, for reasons we'll probably talk about during this interview, was extremely painful for reasons that had nothing to do with ISIS. You know, ISIS was predictable. Uh, that the chain of command for which I worked was less predictable and harder to work with. So I came back and, and had a, a uh, probably unhealthy amount of angst mm-hmm. uh, that, that probably a lot of your listeners and you guys in particular can can uh, can relate to, and and um, you know on previous deployments dealing with angst had I probably found less healthy outlets, you know one of the two things maybe drinking too much for a period, uh, and then combined with almost an obsessive approach to physical exercise. You I know? have no idea what that's like. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure <laughs> I can see you. You know, I mean, but when you're younger, uh, and I couldn't, this time I realized I, I couldn't do that. I, I was at uh, Sox Cent. I was in a responsible position there. Uh, and at the same time, I was reluctant to go to any type of counseling. And, I, and you know, it took me a while to, to, get, to, to get over that barrier. Would to, you say that's a, was that something you learned over the time in the Marine Corps, like that there's a stigma that, you didn't want to be labeled as broken? Hey, or? His, yeah, his, his, that's a, again, that's a really good question. And I'll get to answering yours, Aaron, but sure. Doug asked an even better question, which trumps yours, but I haven't forgotten yours. So <laughs> listen, no, listen, uh, we, over the last few years, of the last 10, 15 years, the military, let's talk about the soft community and the Marines, they're the two communities I'm most familiar with, have overcome some barriers, a lot of barriers as far as taking care of our own. You know, when I think in the early days of the war, and guys would come back and they roll back into civilian life, we were doing nothing to take care of them. And then we have learned collectively over the years. But, we, but, but at the same time, I don't care what anyone says, at the back of your mind, you can feel absolute compassion, understanding, and want to help people around you, but you don't want that recognized in yourself and especially if you're in leadership positions you you don't you you don't want the guys who are following you and depending on you to think that there is part of you that's 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 crumbling that's weak yeah and and so however much i don't think you're going to ever get past that it's so buried in in excuse me for using collective we but it is so buried in our ethos and i was no exception so I found it very difficult to say, hey, yeah, I, go and I need to go and see someone, which yeah, yeah. probably would have been the best way. It's I'm hard. just going to throw this out there because I'm yeah. going to forget about it, even though it slightly derails the conversation. Uh, there is a, another podcast called Hidden Brain, and which I, I personally find interesting. Yeah. And a, a recent episode I listened to was basically about the paradigm shift of rejection. And so it was really talking about how when you're approaching a situation and you're worried about the fear of rejection, you're really only thinking about 
your part of whatever interaction might be happening. Yeah. Right. And that when we, and oftentimes that leads to us not thinking about what the other person feels in terms of any type of pressure on them, et cetera. Um, I don't want to get too far into it, but what you just said really hit the nail on the head as far as really what that talked about. And I think it'd be interesting for you to at least check that podcast out at some point. Yeah, because what you just talked about, again, is something buried in deep in our our psyches, uh, is a visceral desire to to belong, Mm -hmm. to to be part, and and it's drilled into us. I think we probably, it's innate in a lot of us. Even at a command level where you're literally like, you're at the top of the pyramid. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's, and there's a healthy part of that because you don't want a dude who is very happy to be alone in command, right? Who who believes himself so much and has no element of self doubt because we've all had to follow those guys and it's a miserable experience. You know, the, the, the the level of self-confidence that borders on narcissism um, but to your point, yeah, so, so we have this fiscal desire to belong and, and anything that cuts us apart, we, we want to expunge, mm-hmm. right? So now I, this isn't, I know this is not a psychology well, <laughs> enough for you guys, uh, but wait, we but spend a lot about- of time talking about this. I mean, here, it's one of the things that I love the most about the, our company is that I think a lot of us have really discovered vulnerability in you know our late 30s um, when we're still some of us are still operational uh, most of us are in the guard and operational which gives i think some valuable time to do self-reflection yeah. because we're not actively in it all the time but there's still a, a bunch of operational like fully operational guys i mean that are in the crew but i mean like working at the company you know what i mean like i and i would i, I would I would say that the people who are fully operational are less aware of having these discussions than those of us who have yeah. more time. But I, Fair enough. Good the, point. The point on it is to say that I think Aaron's point is that he, the, our perception, especially as more senior leaders, is that the people below us see us as weak when we identify that we, we too need help. But I think one thing that's really been good here is still having one foot in the game and actively proselytizing for mental health and being like, Hey guys, like, Hey, just cause you're in the game doesn't mean that this isn't hurting you. And like going and seeing somebody and talking to them. I talk to young guys all the time. I'm like, Hey man, you want to get ahead of the curve? Find a therapist that you get along with, talk to them about what's going on in your life, get it out there and deal with it. And you'll be better soldier. You'll be, you know, you'll be better as a leader because yep. you're not dealing with all of your own internal struggle stuff internally. And your bandwidth will be freed up to address like, really important things. Yeah. And, and it's a question of self-awareness. Having leaders that can identify that, I, that's, I think, the weakness in general is that we've all toughed out. We, like, we, we spend years being like, well, we don't need sleep. We don't need rest. Yeah. We just go, go, go. And for leaders to say, it's, I mean, it's honestly, from my perspective, it's a responsibility of leaders to say, hey, you need to take a break. Like identify a guy and be like, you know, I'm taking a break. I'm setting the example. You need to take a break. My phone's off. Like, we're not doing anything important. We're not in red cycle taskings, you know, or anything like that. Let's take some downtime and spend time with family. Don't just load training on. You, you, you owe it to your subordinates. Yep, That's, 100%. That is, that, that is the paradox here, is you think that you, it's something you have to hide, but by doing so, you're actually making yourself weaker. Yep. And, and so the analogy with sleep deprivation is a great analogy. And Aaron, I haven't forgotten about your question. Oh, but I'm going to tell a very brief story before I get to ask, answering Aaron's question. So uh, backtrack for all to the beginning of the deployment. And as I, as I mentioned, I, I've been through this tragedy. And I, I went through 
the final Sigis Sodif pre-deployment exercise that was in uh, Sompsi. It's a uh, it's on Fort Bragg. Yep. It, it, it's a, uh, I guess a battle lab type yep. thing, you know. And and um, I've got total blackout over that period. I don't remember anything that happened except for one thing. Apparently, I, I did okay. I performed because it, you know I suppose I was programmed to do so. But I remember one thing, and that was. And credit to to him, a tremendous respect and gratitude to General Votel for for this. But General Votel came to to visit the siege of Sodif. It, it was the first time that a Marine was going to lead a siege of Sodif. So there was, you can imagine, there, <laughs> there was no pressure. Trepidation. You know, your and your you know your community was probably looking at us with a little ambivalence. Partly, um, you know, there were guys certainly were pulling for us, but there were certainly guys who were like, they're going to f this up. Were, were you a debt one guy? What's that? Were you a debt one guy? No, I wasn't. Okay, no, so I, you came in, you transitioned in yeah, after the establishment of yeah, way after. Okay. So I also when debt one was going on, I I was in a unit in Quantico, Quantico called Coalition Special Warfare Center. So there, there are various units within the Marine Corps before we actually formed MARSOC that that kind of fed into MARSOC. One was uh, what was Coalition Special Warfare Center became the Foreign Military Training Unit, and then there was debt one. Uh, that that lived and then died yep. and then was kind of resurrected in, yep. in as, a sense as Marsoc as Marsoc the yep. spirit yeah uh, but but anyway um, getting getting back to uh, to to the, the pre deployment exercise so General Votel came in towards the end of that and kicked everyone out of the, the room sat here was in the room you know just like we're sitting in now and said hey look Andy I know what's happened uh, in your life and no one's going to think the worst of you I know there's a lot of pressure on your shoulders to do this and it, because it, it, you know, this is the first time Marine gets to do this. But but guess what? We can find someone else to do this and and no one's gonna think the worse of you. And uh I you know, I told him, Hey sir, if I stay behind, I, I don't know I don't know you know, I don't know what to I'm gonna do. But the I one mean, thing that's driving you at that point exactly. is a purpose. That's right. And and because uh, my daughter Kayla was not my wife's daughter, I wasn't leaving a a, a distraught, you know, family yep. at wife at home. So um, how, so, old, how old was she when she passed? Uh, she was 23. Oh, wow. She was in uh, Denver, Colorado, and she was working as a um, – uh, she just graduated college. She was helping uh, homeless people. She was working for a, uh, a Catholic organization that helped um, homeless people, and she was hit uh, – she was cycling and hit by a truck. Was, uh, um, I can't anyway, imagine. I'm sorry yeah, if you lost. Uh, but, you know, she, she had more um, – uh, she did more, honestly, in in her short period on on Earth and than, than uh, for other people. When I think back, when I was twenty three, my goodness, I know, you know yeah. I, I'm I, with I, you. She was way way ahead of me. But anyway, so General Votel offered me that out, and uh, and I told him, uh, no, you know, I'll I'll take the siege yourself. And it wasn't because I was altruistic or noble; it was simply because that was that was the means that I could cling on to my sanity, um, for want of a better expression. So to to your point, because what we're talking about here is the fact that you think you're okay, you're not okay, and actually your performance suffers. And well, those, I mean, and those beneath you. We talk about emotional stress, spiritual stress. Um, you know, I mean, psychological, physical. They all compound on each other. And like going through a loss like that, like none of us know how to sit down and be with it. No. And like deal with it without being busy. That, so we distract ourselves, and it just compounds. You know. Yeah, that's right. So fast forward the the first few weeks with the siege of Sodif. During the day, I'm energized. I, I feel as though I have a mission, but at night, I'm lying lying awake. You know, I'm still in in grief. Yep. And I I sense 
that my my ability to command, and this is hard for me to admit even now, um, but even more so at the time, my ability to command, my ability to make decisions was was atrophying. It was not getting, it was getting worse. And I was thinking, shit, if we, we're on month one and I've got another six months to go and I don't think I can do this. And so, you know, one, one night, I mean, I, I just thought, okay, tomorrow morning I'm going to quit. Now think <laughs> about that term. Think about that term, what I just said. Yep. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to quit. Well, I mean, I said that most every day for <laughs> yeah, a long I mean, time. Tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow is the day. <laughs> yeah, but I, was, I mean, I was really, you know, I was, I was determined to do so. And yep. I, I was thinking, and it was a, a, a dreadful realization for me, but I just didn't think I could hang on. Well, so happens that about four o'clock the next morning is pounding on my door, and it's my, uh, my operations officer, Jeff Buffer, say, hey, sir, we got a tick, troops in contact, need you in the jock. Uh, uh, yep. And uh, so so I go down there. And sure enough, ISIS had broken through. It was one of several times during the deployment. ISIS broke through the forward line of troops up in the north in Peshmerga, and they'd surrounded a, a trident, a, you know, a SEAL, yep. um, a SEAL uh, task unit. And uh, we were watching this as, as you, you know, the surreal way that we do now on, on ISR. And um, it, we were battling to, to get not just with ice we were battling to get control of fires from a one-star U.S. general in Erbil so that we could support this team and at the same time trying to queue in the uh, QRF to link up with the team, which is never an easy task. Was he trying to put better. indirect on target? Or? Holy shit. He was playing one-star JTAC. I, I mean, this it. is un- yeah. un-effing believable. No, I feel you. Uh, <laughs> but you've got you to read my book. you got to read my book. It was a criminal – it's as near criminal – act as I have seen from a general officer. P.S. This is the best podcast we've ever had because uh, we have people in frequently who are still very like conscious of the political ramifications. And I love the fact that we have a full bird Marine Colonel in here who's going to talk shit on, on oh, general officers. No, this isn't, this isn't talking <laughs> shit. This is absolutely the cat. I mean, I put it in my book and I, and my book went through a nine month p- scrub Review. at the Pentagon. Yeah. And I know it took why it took nine months because I bet there was a lot of, Hey, don't put that in. There. Hey, don't put that in. Don't put, you know, um, but but in the end, you know, I don't mention who it is, uh, but 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 in the end, no one no one could deny that that had happened. Yeah. Um, and so truth is the ultimate and, defense against and libel. So, <laughs> and so it wasn't, and it gets worse. You know, so so here we are. Uh, we've got a team uh, that you can, you can see VBIDs converging on them. This is no exaggeration, and and they've got uh, there's a small debt of Peshmerga dudes. And and we cannot get control of air. And we've got this one star general in Erbil who's asking questions like, when was their JTAC last qualified? Are you fucking kidding no, me? No, I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. You. I love it. And so he is he is directing air to try and, you know, on on uh, what he can see on on his ISR feed. And they're missing. They're missing these feedbeds. And um, and and in the end, that team was saved by Peshmerga dudes because the team has a. Uh, Carl Gustav. Yep. Uh, but they, they, those things are bouncing off the V-bits. And the team is saved by a, um, a, a Peshmerga team, Milan team. That, that's a great weapon that system. That Milan system is a good system. And, and it's an old system. It's the only it's, reason in my mind that the Kurds still have a state. That's right. Because yeah. when the Iraqi army decided that they were going to push through, that's right. the Milan stopped those M1 Abrams. And yep. the Iraqis thought twice about whether they were going to really double down or not. Yeah. So, you know, the French, uh, this is the French who, who supplied them with those things. It was an inspired choice. And it was a Milan 
that stopped uh, this the one particular V-bit that the one star JTAC had missed a couple of times with bonds. But you can imagine we're watching this, and I'm I'm apoplectic, you know. I'm and and uh, and Raging. I'm, I'm I'm calling the jock in a bill, and I've got one of his flunkies saying, "Hey, the general's too busy right now." Can't of course talk he's, to you. Yeah, he can't talk to you. He's busy fucking yeah. up my battle um, space. So you know, in the meantime, we're trying to do a number of things. We're we're trying to bring in a. Uh, a team, the, the QRF, to link up with them, which is always difficult, even at the best of times, uh, under, you know, when you've got a team engaged. But bottom line is, uh, by by the thinnest of margins, that the that attack was repulsed by the Peshmerga. The team, uh, the, the Trident, miraculously didn't suffer any casualties that time. Going ahead, we did suffer casualties in similar circumstances with the similar fights with that one star. Uh, you know, and as again, which I relay in, in my book. But, you know, so that whole incident lasted two hours. And I'll never forget, uh, you know, it's getting light outside. I walk outside and I thought, yeah, I can't quit now. You know, I, it, it, it was and it wasn't it, it wasn't from kind of an arrogance of, well, only I can do this sort of stuff. It's I can't I can't walk away from this kind of responsibility. No, you know, I've got to stay. So it was. It, it it was a well timed wake up for me, and and thank goodness it didn't result in in worse things. Aaron, I haven't forgotten about your question, All right, man? So <laughs> anyway, back we're going to talk about right. no, we're going to talk about more things during that deployment. But you know, at the end of the deployment, uh, I I get home, and I'm, as I mentioned, I'm I've got a lot of internal angst, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to start writing the story of what what happened in the last. Deployment for catharsis. Catharsis, yeah. and I thought, here's the other part about it too. I've got, I've got an older daughter from a previous marriage, Shimon, uh, who's who's uh, now twenty. I've got to make sure I get this right. She's twenty six. Yeah, <laughs> she's married, and then I've got an eleven year old and a thirteen year old, and I wanted them to be able to read the story of why I was away so much while they were growing up. And so I wrote, I started writing, and then I realized while I was writing, I couldn't think about anything else. I was totally absorbed. And it was half an hour a day, then an hour, then two hours. And it wasn't a task for me. It was really something I look forward to. Well, the pages are like a therapist because, you know, like that's the thing about when I started doing therapy, I was like, "Uh, this fucking asshole doesn't say anything to me. Like he doesn't give me any advice. Like, why am I paying this dude? And then I realized it was just a chance for me to start talking about stuff that I'd never talked about before. That's a a great analogy. That's right. It's, uh, you know, you're just laying all that. And the funny thing is... I was talking to, um, and and I hadn't told anyone this story, but I was talking to a guy named uh, uh, Turley, Colonel Turley, retired uh, Vietnam era Marine who was involved in the 72 North Vietnamese offensive. Uh, You know, he's one of the advisors tied up in that. So very heavy combat against tanks and stuff. And he told me, I I used to have terrible nightmares until I started writing my books. He's he's since then become an, an author. So there's some truth in this. So if you're out there and you're thinking about writing. Well, I mean, it's what we talked about earlier where you're saying, like, I don't want to show weakness. I don't want to talk about what happened because I think we're all afraid that if we are like, A, (laughs) your perception of what happened in that jock is very different than every other person who was there. That's right. And like, you're going to be the worst critic of yourself. Yeah. You're going to be like remembering every mistake you made while other people are seeing like good things that you did and maybe mistakes at the same time. And they're also tempering their impression based on their own reactions and what they're doing. And, you know, to say, like, I don't, I'm not going to remember any of that. 
I'm just going to put it in a box and I'm going to stuff it way back into my subconscious and it's not going to affect me. And yeah. like, I mean, for me, uh, I mean, when I, I had a really rough rotation in like the 08, 09 timeframe, which didn't seem rough. I thought it was normal. It was my first trip to Afghanistan. And, um, I launched straight from that into a trip into Afghanistan or into Iraq where it was a different situation, but a very dynamic one as we wound down in Iraq and we were like the last team North of Baghdad. And, um, I mean, I was going through like severe PTSD, like put up, I mean, I was told by my command, like, Hey, you're here right now. You're with this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in a leadership role. I need to do these things. I need to do the best I can. I never talked about the stuff. Um, I didn't remember anything that happened whole, like the chronology kind of just melted away. And, um, like I was, I, I was dealing with a lot of trauma and, um, like, I mean, I finally started to talk about it and go through it, which unearthed a bunch of stuff from like when I was a kid, like why yeah. did I become a special oh, forces yeah. guy to begin with? You know, that's right. Yeah. It goes, and, uh, like we're, it's, all, we're all pretty messed up even before we joined the military. Oh, for sure. Otherwise, otherwise we would never have done it. <laughs> wouldn't have volunteered for yeah. this. Right. I'm with you. <laughs> um, but like, I think it's, it's funny because the younger guys that are coming up, look up to us, even if we don't feel like we're deserving of it. Guys are like, Hey, I look up to you. I mean, I worked with a bunch of SEAL teams in, um, in 2017, 2018 in Iraq that were like, we look up to you guys. And you're like, why? Cause I'm old. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cause you've done some stuff and you're like, Hey man, that's, I really like, I'm flattered, but also like, it's my job to set an example. Like I yeah. doesn't mean I have to be a quote unquote quiet professional. I need to tell these guys like, do you need to take care of yourself? You need to like, you need to talk about what's going on. If you feel a certain way, you should talk about it and you shouldn't be judged for it. Yeah. We should say, Hey, like it's natural to feel that way. <laughs> because <laughs> you know? it makes you a better operator, officer, leader, person. Well, if you're worried about being judged, you're worrying about the wrong fucking thing. That's true. Because what yeah. you need to be worried about is like, Hey, what is like, what are my metal tasks? What is the mission? What am I doing? And if I'm literally sitting there going, Hey, if I look stupid in front of these guys, <laughs> I'm I'm fucked. No one will ever respect me. Like, no, man, we should put that shit away. Don't worry about how other people are seeing you. Worry about doing your job. And when guys get that, that synergy, like that's what they talk about. The team dynamic and soft is like what everybody wants to recreate. And I'm like, hey, man, that's when guys put away the worries because they're such good friends with the other guys. They're not worried about being shit on. You know, hey, man, that guy cut the time fuse like half an inch short. Let's fire him. No, yeah. man. Everybody's like, oh. Uh, that went off early, <laughs> you know, but yeah. they trust everybody in the team to do their job competently and no one's really spending a lot of time worrying about other people's roles. And that lets people focus on what matters, you know, their bandwidth for the, the task at hand. But if we're like wrapped up in emotional stuff, which I think most of us are at one point or another, I mean, you've mentioned a few ex-wives and <laughs> that's a big distraction. Yeah. One ex-wife. I just want to <laughs> Say oh, that fair for the record, yeah. Previous <laughs> relationships, yeah. No, you're right. You go internal, and and once you've gone internal, you become less effective, and that's they, that's absolutely correct. So so I was writing. It was I was enjoying it, and uh, within a few months, uh, about four or five months, I had 130,000 <laughs> words. Jesus Christ! And it was a manuscript, and so I I was at the time. In, and still am in contact with a guy named Bing West, who is now has since become more even more famous than he was because he helped. See, and like, I forgive you guys. It sounds like you should be a poker player. I forgive you guys for not having heard of him. He's a he's he's a former Marine, but he also is the co-author of uh, Call Sign Chaos with uh, General Mattis. Right on. 
and uh, wrote a number of um, has written a number of books about uh, about the war. Actually, you know, going all the way back to Vietnam. Anyway, so Bing West uh, encouraged me to to submit the manuscript for publication. Now, bad timing was I did that just as every single seal in you know, and as though you had done the same. So if you walked into any, you walked into Barnes Noble over the military section, it was just one memo after another. And and so it was bad timing. So I took a battering, I mean, as I far feel as, as though it's a stretch to call Rob O'Neill's book a memoir. It's more a, a, a self filating tale of grandeur. Yeah, I haven't, you know, I haven't read it. <laughs> I haven't read it. But it was, it was just bad timing. Let me tell you how awesome I am. <laughs> yeah, that's, trust me, your guys, anyone, anyone who picks up my book and looks at it will, can tell you that that is not what my no, book's No, I, I, I was actually really, uh, it was funny, Worth spoke really highly of you, and uh, I read the, you know, the foreword and the, about the book, and to me, it's very different, like if you had written the book solely about your command as a siege of commander, it would have been one thing, but to start as a lieutenant and actually chronicle your 30 years in the Marine Corps and actually like spend some time talking about your fuck ups and oh, certainly plenty yeah. of time. Like yeah. that's, that is the, the dialogue that matters when we're talking to like, you know, future generations and being like, like I said, I think that the younger guys that look up to us think it was easy for us. Yeah. They're like, Hey, like I, they don't see the, the trials and tribulations, the emotional stress and, and the, the fuck ups and the self doubt. Yep. Because if you are so, so good, I think, you know, we talked about, or at least I did, uh, but I feel as though you're you at least with me in spirit, Aaron, when I was talking about this, was the leadership, the fact that you do not want a leader who never has self-doubt, right? Totally. You, he's got, it's, a, it's a fine line. You can't have a guy who is paralyzed by self-doubt, but at the same time, anyone who never experiences self-doubt, who doesn't constantly assess, hey, how am I doing? What I, I, could I have done that better? Is not the sort of guy who should no, be I mean, leading. That's a psychopathic maniac. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, narcissist. So, I, you know, what, one, of the, one of the reviews that I'm, I'm happiest with, and the books had great reviews, I've been really fortunate, uh, but was the Marine Corps Gazette review uh, by the editor of the Marine Corps Gazette, and he said, you know, there's a paragraph in there that just says, hey, if you're looking for a chest-pounding, story of self-promotion and there I was this is this is not for you this is a brutally honest that's a pretty awesome review man yeah I, I thought I'd love that I, I whatever anyone else says about the book that was you yeah. know that that, that that meant a lot to me I yeah well I'll, we were talking earlier because you can look at the cover and say oh my god you know there's my pictures on the cover sure. no I fought against that but my publishers know your pictures going on the yeah, cover, your pictures you, know? going on the cover. Like, you gotta sell books right <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and, so, uh, and the subtitle, Marine Special Operations Commander, that is liable to turn off Marines. Well, I feel like people in general, like, and this is this this is a credit towards, like, the Rob O'Neill thing, but, I mean, I think it goes way higher than that. I mean, honestly, uh, I, f I flipped through General Mattis's book, and I feel like a lot of people um, write their memoirs in an effort to create a self-fulfilling uh, footnote. Yes. Where it's like, I'm going to guide the narrative about how I'm remembered by writing about a series of successes and critical decisions that I made in during stressful times that panned out well. That's right. <laughs> and That's they're right. not they're not wading into I mean, you know, uh, I I love George W. Bush. I think he's a great guy, but when you write a book like Decision Points or whatever and you are only highlighting places where you think you made good decisions or I mean they were challenging. Yeah. But to say like, hey, it would to me, I mean, hey, let's talk about 
well, was it the right decision? Yeah. You know, like, was it? No, Being that's really a, critical and honest. That, that is, that's absolutely great. So I made every effort on, when I wrote this, to write things the way they were rather than I wanted them to have been. And I was helped in that for a lot of the time I, I kept a, a journal. And it, and it was just, it was one of those spiral notebooks and I would just write stuff in the evenings. And the only time I didn't was during the Battle of Fallujah when I was, I was just too exhausted and strung out <laughs> to do that. But most of, it wasn't every evening, but I, I would write stuff because I, I wanted to remember I, I, wanted, I, didn't, I had no idea I was going to write a book, but I wanted to remember what I felt that day. So, for instance, you know, I'll give you two examples in the book, one near the beginning, one near the end. So in, in Mogadishu, there's an episode in the book where, you know, every time we, we were in uh, – I was with the uh, 15th uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit as the first unit to land in Mogadishu in December of 92. And while the rest of the battalion – I was with the battalion called 2nd Battalion, 9th Marine. So the rest of the battalion was conducting a – a uh, humanitarian convoy to buy Doha uh, inland. My platoon was left in the port area of Mogadishu, which was right on a, right in an area called the Green Line, which separated. This is prior to Black Hawk. Though. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah, a prior. few months prior. So, so it separates uh, General Idid, who subsequently became infamous in Black Hawk Down, from his biggest warlord rival, a guy named Mahdi. Now. The area that we were patrolling actually included the Hotel Olympia and included that whole the area where Black Hawk Down occurred was going to happen a few months later. It was a bad, very volatile area, and we started taking fire from from day one, as a matter of fact. And we were, you know, the, when when you're inexperienced, you don't know for sure you're being shot at, but when you but then it becomes apparent to you that that you are. So you know, as a platoon commander, that was. That, that was an increasingly fraught situation because we weren't – it wasn't like years later where you were in Iraq, you had a declared hostile force. We, we, were, um, we were under pretty tight rules of engagement. We weren't allowed to take weapons off dudes. Uh, we were allowed to act in self-defense. Anyway, bottom line is there's one incident described in the book where you know, the situation is getting worse and worse, and I've realized it's a matter of time before – yeah, Marines already been killed near the airfield, and it's it's a matter of time before one of my guys gets hurt. We're right on the green line, heading to an area called the Parliament Building, and we start taking fire again. And um, we we uh, we go into this, the Parliament Building, we clear it. I only have a squad reinforce. I mean, a platoon, um, a platoon minus, and. And then it comes time to pull out. I realize, hey, when we head back to the port, this is just going to keep happening every time that we do this. So I, I keep a, a small stay behind. Stay behind is basically a fire team. It's like six guys uh, there in, in the parliament building. We send the rest of the patrol back. And sure enough, IDs con- dudes converge on that building. We challenged them. Uh, w- one of them uh, swings a dishka towards us in a technical. We open fire, shoot the driver, the gunner, and one other guy in that technical. And my machine gunner, his gun jams, you know, so we, otherwise we would have got more. And uh, the, the uh, IDs militia, they withdraw, but we can we can hear like this ever this steadily increasing murmur of anger around the corner as this this crowd just gets ready we think to to come and charge the parliament building again i've only got six dudes and so we call for um backup from the from the port which is my platoon the only ones there and during that period i'm thinking this has gone south really quickly for me. I'm stuck here. This is the end of my career. Yeah. I'm, when I was thinking, <laughs> if I die. it's the end of me. Yeah, if I'm yep. fortunate enough to survive. And it's my fault. 
you know, I mean, this is my fault. I've, I've left these guys out to dry. Uh, we didn't have to. Uh, we, we we didn't have to 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 go in and, and clear that building, or, although it made tactical sense because the building overlooked the port and there was an a, an offload of, of supplies at the port. But anyway, cut a long story short, the the QRF arrives. We manage we bail out. We manage to get back to the port. Okay, where I am charged, or I'm I'm taken over for questioning at the airfield for for having shot yep. four guys. It's the first such incident. And, it, you know, the thing is, it, it, everyone's attitude, hey, this is a humanitarian mission, Lieutenant. What didn't you understand about I'm, this? I'm reasonably certain a memo went up to the President Clinton's <laughs> office about this uh, incursion. It was still Bush, yeah. It was, oh, uh, was it? Yeah, yeah it was, so, so it was, but remember, um, January of... Uh, Bush, uh, Clinton's inauguration was January of uh, 93. Okay. Yeah, so this was December of 92. Oh, wow. Right Um, on. Yeah, it was, uh, but uh, that may but, have been what anyway, saved you. <laughs> no, what saved me? His, his, for those, you know, for those who who just hate the media, this is what saved me. It was an AP photographer who happened to have photographs of the whole thing. I mean, a string of photographs like uh, stills from a film yeah, yeah. that show this guy swinging the dishka around towards us, and then us opening fire, and that's what. Wow. That's what. But you know, my point is that. In telling that story was I made a series of decisions that put my guys at significant risk without perhaps a, a chances of a good outcome. And mm-hmm. it was a, you know, if, if things had turned, if things had happened slightly differently, we would have ended up with, a, with some dead Marines and it would have been my fault. Uh, it, and so, I, you know, I'm, I'm honest about that. And then fast forward as Siege Assertive Commander – the the second or third time that this one star endangered my guys' lives, I sent a lawyer up there to question people in in the Jock and Obeil. Uh, you know, I said, "Hey, I'm I'm the, I'm going to start an investigation and bring charges against this guy for." And uh, we actually we lost a seal a guy named named Keating. Yep. And I can't blame the one star for that, but he wasn't helpful in in what happened during that. Uh, during that particular uh, action. And so I, I was infuriated. Uh, was this 16? It was 16. Did you, um, I mean, you were, as a Siege of Commander, as an 06, did you not have, um, I mean, did the TSOC or whatever, like, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, there's a reason they tried to put a star. We had a one star in Baghdad. Okay. And, yeah. But he wasn't capable of flexing on our Beal. That is not convenient. <laughs> and for the benefit of your listeners, I'm making a head gesture. Yep. Negative. For Doug here. It's, it's, not, it's not a positive. It's not an up and down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Noted. I was um, like, because I know that was the big stink about trying to put First yeah, Special the, Forces Command so as a parallel. So in theory, that one star in Baghdad was was there to provide top cover for the siege of Sodiv. But that was that's mainly to defend your decisions on the ground, not to supersede a battle space commander in that's a different right. area. Okay, that's right. Got but it. the problem is, a he's a one star, and you're dealing with a, you know, we had a an army division, and I, I'm going to say that again, an yep. army division headquarters consisting of almost a thousand guys above my siege of So we had five. I had like something like 540 guys in the siege of all told. Not the headquarters, the whole thing. And then we had a, a, a headquarters above us of a thousand guys to include 10 generals headed by a two star. That is really, it's such a anathema thought. I mean, just to think about that to me, like, 
I remember when I was an E6, like I, I was given way too much responsibility as an E6, uh, as essentially kind of like an operation sergeant for a uh, B team for, uh, you know, SODF. And, um, I remember my company commander would like go to sleep and he would like, he would tell me, Hey, when the battle space commander calls and wants to talk to me about what we did last night, tell him that he doesn't have any authority to tell me what to do. Yeah. And I would like pick up the phone and there'd be like this full bird on the line. I want to talk to your commander. And I'd be like, uh, sir, he told me to tell you that he doesn't really care what you have to say. <laughs> and I'm like, isn't he six? I'm telling this guy, I'm like, man, like, cause you know, I mean, what we're doing, I mean, we're a soda, right? So yeah. like who cares what the conventional battle space guys trying to tell us we have to do to maintain, you know, like don't drive your vehicles through Mosul. That's like, that's not our area. And like, well, we can kind of go where we want to go. It's a very, the, the thing I realized, and it was really driven home to me, was the cultural, the huge cultural gulf between conventional, uh, especially Army conventional and soft. I would argue there's less of a cultural gulf between Marine and, and soft. It's, it's kind of slightly different. Well, I think it's because the mindset is to close with and destroy. Like, I mean, you're not talking about a, a wildly overburdened organization that's focused on supporting themselves and not like destruction yeah. of, of another force. Yeah. It, it's a, uh, and, and a misunderstanding. The, the part of the culture that I'd learned is I, I felt on the conventional side was a, a lack of trust and a misunderstanding of the balance between mission and risk, you know, that we all, that we all start learn about from, from junior leaders is, you know, you, you're constantly. We can mitigate you, it, but we can't eliminate it. That's right. You yep. can't eliminate it, and you're constantly balancing because we always say, the, you know, the mission first, then the men. But but at the same time, you can't forget about the men because you owe them a, a huge obligation too. And so you're, you're, you're always balancing that, right? And that was the balance I didn't always get right as a second lieutenant Margaret issue. Yep. Uh, but at the same time, you you can't – we couldn't have accomplished our mission in Iraq, which was dismantle, degrade, defeat – some ridiculous alliterative devices. <laughs> yeah, if you hey, someone, try saying that quickly. Someone you know? had an excellent OER <laughs> bullet based on that. You can't, you can't do that. You can't get there from here without accompanying your partner nation force, which entails risk. Yep. You know, I mean, you can't, it's not like ordering a pizza. You can't, you, you can't do all of that remotely. And that was misunderstood. I think it's demonstrated very well by who actually won that fight. Like we may have provided some level of, of hardening to the Iraqi military, but to me, IA's successes in fighting ISIS was a hundred percent related to ISOF. That's right. And, it was all ISOF. And ISOF was built by tier one and SF units and, and, you know, soft units in general that yeah. advised them for a decade before we left in 2011. Those guys knew their job and they were brave and mission motivated. And they came into a, a, a an afraid Iraqi army. Every uh, successful offensive in that fight was bolstered by ISOF. And when I showed up in 16 and was like, hang or 17 and I'm hanging out and I'm like, hey, what happened to this guy? You're like, I'm looking for all my ISOF guys. And they're like, man, that guy's dead. Oh, yeah. That guy's dead. Uh, the, the attrition was incredible. But, you know, the, and you're absolutely right. It was ISOF was the cornerstone of but victory. They though. accompanied. They took the risk. That's, they did what we were what we are used to doing. They yep. provided that advisory role, like that, that leadership and the guidance for guys that would have otherwise been too scared. To do something. Well, they spearheaded everything, the yep. whole campaign. But in the end, too, it was only in it was only after in mid 2016 when we got a company permissions that we were able 
to we the, our our ability to support them became exponentially much greater. You know, it, it, there's the there's the tangible part, right? About we all know because who was it at JTAC? Brian is at JTAC, right? Yep. Yeah. So, you know, the the tangible part about being able to deliver fires is not by remote, but actually being there and, and getting a feel for the battlefield. That's huge. But there's also the intangible benefit and the trust and everything else that builds from you accompanying your partner nation force into combat. Well, you're, you're, you can't replicate that. You're putting the risk out there with them. And That's like, right. you can't do that remotely. Like you can train them yeah. and say, hey, you guys are ready. And they don't believe you. Yeah. You got to go out there with them and you got to do it. So you understand that and you understand that because that is your, that's been your bread and butter. But but for the conventional dudes, not not well, the case. It's a good example. I, in 2011, this is prior to like the standing up of the SFABs and like the conventional army's effort to like mirror what foreign internal defense looks like. Um, I we, we were running. I was in Mosul um, with Soda North, and we were running up and back and forth between uh, Dehuk a lot. And we would pass the border checkpoint between Iraq and Kurdistan, and there was a company of infantry guys that were there providing um, mentoring to a mixed force of Peshmerga and Iraqi army guys. And, you know, like, I mean, God bless them. Every time we drive by, I'd always like hit them up on the FBCB2 and be like, hey, you guys want anything while we're up there? We'll bring you something back. And they were always like, fuck off. Like, literally, they were dicks. They were like, no, you don't need anything from you. All right, cool, man. Third, fourth time, I I stopped. I bought like 70 mid-dinners, like a whole big-ass spread into Hook and came back and just pulled right up to their gate and was like, hey, let me in. Here's my here's my creds. And like, all right, cool. So we pull in, and I just like set up this whole spread for these guys. And I was talking to the lieutenant, and he's like, you know, we're out here doing your job. And I'm like, hey, sir, I mean, I brought you guys dinner because I just wanted to bullshit with you, and I wanted to see what you guys were up to, and I wanted to see what we could do to help you period. And he's like, well, you know, we're doing your job. You guys should be here doing this. This is bullshit. My guys hate it. You know, we're like here mentoring these guys. And I'm like, Hey, sir, how many, how many Peshmerga and Iraqi guys do you have here? Like, I really want to know. And he's like, well, you know, we have seven Peshmerga here and seven Iraqis at any point, but like, it's like 21 guys that rotate, you know, on each side through seven at a time. And I was like, and how many guys do you have? And he's like, well, we have, we have like a company plus. And I'm like, well, what does that amount to? You know, it's like, well, you know, it's like, hundred guys, but more or less depending like where guys are at moving around. And I'm like, <clears throat> so you guys brought more dudes to mentor less guys. I yeah. was like, Hey, when I, I was like, when I was an E five in Afghanistan, I was tasked to be in charge of organizing training and leading a battalion sized element by myself. And I was like, that's what foreign internal defense looks like. That's what force multiplication looks like. That's the job. You can't, like you can't bring more guys to train less guys. You have to come in. It's like the old legend, like uh, when there's a riot and uh, the the town call like this is a Texas town. They called for the Texas Rangers, and you know the Rangers are coming. They're coming in on this train, and everybody from the town shows up to greet the Rangers that are going to solve the problem. And off the train comes one Ranger, and they're like, "Where's everybody else?" He's like, "One riot, one Ranger." <laughs> you know, like I mean, that's. Yeah. Guys that you train have to have confidence in their ability to perform and they have to be able to translate that confidence to their partner force and say, hey, once you've done the right training, once you've demonstrated core competencies, you're ready and I'm here with you. Like, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to herd you a little bit. I'm going to press when you guys are doubtful, but like you guys are good. You'll do it on, you know, with me, not by yourself. But as you know, that takes a particular type 
of personality to be able to do that. Not every good soldier marine can make a good. That's why we have a selection process. Advice. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And it's very interesting when when the Marine Corps stood up, and I talk about this in my in my book too. The Marine Corps mm-hmm. stood up um, an advisor program. This was in late two thousand and three when when uh, when we realized that our First of all, that there was a counterinsurgency, burgeoning counterinsurgency in Iraq. And the second was that unless we invested some of our, you know, our talent in the advisor program that we were going to going to fail. It was going to fail. Yep. And so, so, uh, so I was involved at, like, you know, the ground floor of uh, how do we select these guys? How do we train them? We didn't really, you know, surprisingly enough, we didn't never in the Marine Corps had a selective selection process. I will say somehow it seemed to work pretty well, though, uh, whether it was just the right kind of guy volunteered for that kind of mission. Uh, and then we had a very uh, abbreviated course that gradually got better to to prepare them for it. But one, one thing I learned and then subsequently having been an advisor uh, is that, you know, even on an advisor team, there were guys who were just were not good at advising. They lacked they lacked that gene that, you know, I guess now you call it emotional intelligence. Oh, yeah, being able to build rapport. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, they were great Marines, but they... Well, it's funny, you know, I think a lot of Marines look to the, like, Gunny Highway as the example, <laughs> which is you funny. Mean not? But, I mean, the funny part is, like, they see, they take away the wrong elements of Gunny Highway. But That's Gunny right. Highway was an expert. He had am- amazing oh, emotional yeah. intelligence. And, like, he broke guys down. He set the example. And then he empowered the guys, you know, to lead on their own. It wasn't just about abusive behavior or, like, belittling his subordinates. He established credibility and then, you know, imparted wisdom and then let them Doug, go on their own. That's a great topic for a separate – for a whole <laughs> podcast. No, seriously. I mean uh, because Heartbreak Ridge is an execrable movie, but it's a it, – it is it is one that it, it, I, I can't stay away from. You know, I'll say the movie. other day if it shows tomorrow, I will go and watch it. And you're right. I mean think about how he handled Sweet. Oh, yeah, man. You know I mean? You know. <laughs> Well, if you're gonna make me, <laughs> <laughs> sir, shall I uh, shall I wait here for the MPs? <laughs> anyway, uh, no, let's see. It's I mean, it's hard. I, it, it, the, it it goes back. I think that there's a conflict in the special operations community right now um, where people misunderstand the soft truths. Where you know people are so butthurt about women being allowed to assess much less be in a special operations environment that, you know, they're constantly calling on this, like special operations can't be mass produced. Well, you're right. They can't. Currently we're having real trouble meeting numbers with men alone, period. Yeah. Uh, the standard is the standards challenging. Um, but it's a cultural gap. And I think that what is great to see from command and like, you know, I'm sure a lot of older dudes are going to be pissed at me, but I'm like, I see command. Uh, I mean, General Sontag got a really bad rep for what he, you know, for that whole process. But I mean, I think he did an admirable job approaching a mission that he was given, which is to say what matters in the assessment process? What is the final product we're trying to create? We are trying to create people who can perform X, Y, and Z job. Yep. Is it important that those guys be one man armies or is it important that they demonstrate emotional intelligence, that they have a desire to not quit? Um, you know, like, yes, our turds slipping through the cracks. They always have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it doesn't matter. What but there are, but there are turds who are super fit 
And yep. you know that that that's a that's a great point. And I, I was I had this discussion the other day uh, with someone. Uh, oh, you know what? It was up in Canada, the Canadian soft. I was talking to their selection guys. Canadian soft guys are pretty cool. Yeah, and so they can soft. So they were saying, you know, we got a lot of dudes who are super athletes who come in, and they're not necessarily the best soft guys. And one thing we realized is that their resilience has never been tested to the same extent as a guy, Joe Blow. You know, you or me? No, actually, you're you. you Trust You're me, super athlete, I've but, been kicked in my dick. Oh, I was 135 pounds when I came to the key yeah, course. I've you know, never worked out in my who life. Who struggles, yep. who's, who's having to, to, to just to, to dig deep just to, just to make it yep. and, and showing that, that resilience. It's a different test for a guy who, who just breezes through it, right? Well, and, and it's a sense of insecurity that drives it because when I look in the mirror, it doesn't matter what my physique is or what my numbers are now. I still see 135-pound Doug who isn't going to meet the standard unless right. he pushes harder. Yeah. And so, like, and that's a personal struggle too, which is what when we're talking about mental health is to be like, hey, at what point can I just accept that I'm good enough? Like, yeah. can I say, hey, you know what? Like, I can love myself, show some grace, and be like, this is cool. I'm happy, dude. I don't need to feel bad when I look in the mirror or sharpshoot like what I can do better when I'm every time you know every time you do something well that wasn't good enough it has to be better next time pressuring yourself into like this unrealistic expectation like what is good enough I think a small element of insecurity is healthy yeah no for sure but it's (laughs) just a it's necessary absolutely for some of the reasons we talked about as a leader but also to, to propel yourself forward but but again too much and you have has adverse effects not just in you but those around you and and if you're following a guy who has too much often they you find out they're fear biters yep you know they snap at other people because and they, and they turn into into tyrants because they're unsure of that position well and i think that goes back to what we were talking about about mentoring guys which is really in my mind the root of the real problem in soft is that a lot of the experienced guys who are capable of mentoring have left because of but I mean, the number one complaint is, is toxic leadership, right? Like the guys just, hey, I'm a qualified person who feels good about myself and wants to help other people. And I'm not being allowed to do that. And I can leave and I'm going to. And then you have younger guys who don't know what they're doing and don't have the capability of mentoring who are thrust prematurely into leadership positions. And that, you know, it's this it's it's a snowball. It gets bigger and bigger as it goes downhill. And there's nobody to correct the process to say, hey, listen, man, like this is what is important. This is how you should be like, yes, it's Those really cultural easy. problems are so difficult to it, change. It's it's because oh, there's right. there's no one to to arrest it. And once it, and once once a culture starts to go south, mm-hmm. it is so hard to turn it around. You know, it's it. And and I know, I, I know this is a it's, it's a topic. It's kind of topic de jour in our community right now across across soft. But it, it doesn't matter. It's not just soft. You you name it. Any culture once once things start to go wrong, a they start to go wrong before anyone in in a position to change things even notices it. It's all incremental, right? Certain things become okay, then they become. Uh, they not only condoned, but they almost become mandatory, and and then eventually you have everyone doing something that well because they think it's okay. they think it's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think that a lot of that, I think there are indications, and 
people don't want to see the bellwethers because they don't know how to change them. So when you see a dramatic shift in the average age of a unit that has previously had a lot of maturity and then you're like, hey, we got younger and younger guys. Well, they're more energetic. They're more hard charging. No, man, like they are lost. And like, you know, it doesn't say that old guys are all universally morally correct dudes, but they understand their operational environment better. They've got a little more experience. Um, and I think that the the hard part is to say, like, we've always thought we could throw money at the problem and keep good guys, but the money we throw at the problem by keeping, like, we keep senior porch sitters yeah. in soft. They're yeah. like, hey, man. Yeah, the guys who are motivated by money are necessarily the guys that, that want to stay. Yeah. And the devil's money never applies to guys that are, like, actually making a difference in, in the force. The devil's money sits there and is like, hey, you're a senior E8 in a staff job. Hang on six months longer so you can get that $140,000 bonus. You know, study your language so your language is high enough so you can get that money. Don't worry about your subordinates. You know, like, I mean, I recognize that's a generalism, but... No, it happens to guys who are milestone-driven. Yep. And, you know, everything is a... They've got their future mapped out. But that's a character issue. You're never going to change those guys. And and we have them in, in every service. We have them in... Plenty of them in the, in the, you know in the Marine Corps, you know, even among officer ranks. What was the biggest cultural issue that you had to deal with within an organization that you led? Yeah, we had and this was way prior to soft, but it's a very I think it's a very interesting case study because it keeps reappearing within the Marine Corps. And this was a this was an episode in recruit training when I was a series commander in San Diego. Back in 94, 95, that dates me a little bit. So, you know, when Doug was in grade school. Uh, and I cannot and Brian, disagree with that. And, and Brian was shortly after Brian was born. But, <laughs> but I, I, took, I took command of a company. I was a junior captain. I took command of a company on the drill field in, in San Diego. And so a company consists of about 40 drill instructors and at any given time, you've got maybe 300, 400 recruits going through, you know, the, the pipeline within that company. Both the recruit depots, uh, for those of you, you know, listeners who are not, not familiar with this, it, it's, an, it's a giant machine. You've got one in Paris Island. You've got one in San Diego. Each churns through 20,000 recruits every year. It's massive, all right? When the machine works, it's an awesome thing. You, you take a guy off the streets and and this isn't me spouting Marine Corps propaganda, but you I mean, take, it is a little bit. You, yeah, yeah, come on. But I mean, it's yeah. I mean, but you know, with justification. I mean, you take because we don't get. You know, I hate to say it, we don't get the valedictorians and the and the captain of the football uh, football team. We get Joe Blow, middle of his class, comes in a civilian. Thirteen weeks later, he turns out as a he leaves a marine. Now, the problem is this. Okay, the the problem is that. Uh, the, the drill instructors are all fairly junior guys, junior sergeants through staff sergeants. They get brought in, especially if they're from non-combat arms. They've seen full metal jacket. You give them a, a you know, one of the uh, smoky bear hats, and they start to believe that they are something that they are not. They develop the frog voice. And if they're not given careful leadership by that. I can't understand a word they're saying. Exactly. If they're not, <laughs> yeah, trust me, you know, if, if they're not given careful leadership, things go off the rails quickly. So what happened in this particular company was there was a series of abuses. And I'm not talking about, you know, a recruit, a recruit's 
being given excessive incentive training or physical training, whatever. This was weird stuff. And we had recruits being made to wash each other's testicles, uh, which they need I don't to be, know. They I don't need know, to be clean, sir. Well, that's, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so in, it, you know, weird homoerotic stuff like pouring Tabasco sauce down each other's butt cheeks. And there were drill instructors charging recruits for pizza parties that never happened. I mean, stealing money from Sounds them, Sounds like a Blackwater contract. Oh, it, yeah. It was, <laughs> it, it, was, it, it was insane. And, they, and the problem is, as you started to peel, pull back the layers on this, it was embedded in that drill instructor culture throughout the company. They, they were all bad. And, it, you know, it, it had – because over a period of time, a period of officers kind of turning – looking away or thinking, eh, there's nothing wrong here, what it developed is kind of a Lord of the Flies culture within within the drill instructor community uh, within that company. And so they, even the way they treated each other was – you know, the new, the new drill instructors was uh, – you know, I suppose what you would predatory, toxic, yeah, it's predatory, yeah. absolutely, and and it extended to the recruits, and so trying to turn that ship was a was a horrendous task, and I wasn't again when I talk about being honest about it, I, I was very nearly relieved. There are there were maybe one or two times, three times, okay, maybe ten times in my career <laughs> when I was almost <laughs> relieved, and this was one where I I would I probably should have been relieved because it, what I did is I went after. I was chasing my tail or I was chasing the bullseye, all right? I was, I was going after drill instructors as they were caught as violating the SOPs, yeah. And instead of, instead of taking a step back going, okay, who controls this culture? And understanding that the senior drill instructors were condoning that culture, mm-hmm. however much they may say to me, hey, sir, you know. We've been passing the buck at a senior leader level as long as I've been in the Army, which is to say when something goes wrong, we put 100% of the blame on the person that did the wrong thing, which they certainly deserve to bear the brunt of it. However, having senior leaders always pointing their fingers down at that person and acting as though it's an exception and not something that was a learned trait. That's right. Is unacceptable. That's as well. exactly right. And so this was a harsh lesson that I learned. And it was only, and I was probably on, as again, I was probably on the verge of relief six, seven months into this where I pulled the drill, the funny, I pulled the senior drill instructors into it. And I didn't – I had a crappy first sergeant too, which doesn't help because if I'd had a good first sergeant, he would have told me on day one, hey, sir, get the frickin' senior drill instructors in the room. Tell them the next next frickin' thing that happens in any of the platoons. You don't care if it's a, a recruit being woken up two minutes earlier before Reveille. There, he's gonna, the senior drill instructor will get fired. It doesn't matter what it is. You're going to lose your black belt. And so it wasn't until maybe month six or seven that I gave him that speech. And you know what? That turned that turned things around almost right well, away. Well, then they have to do their goddamn job. Yeah. You know, now I, now, now I had to get the battalion commander's backing, of course, in order to do that. But that was a that was a huge lesson to me. Find out who controls the levers of power within that culture and be absolutely uncompromising. The Marine Corps within. does a pretty good job of empowering officers as well. Like officers are taken generally seriously. Even second lieutenants who come out of IOC are yep. viewed as being the leader. And in the Army, we definitely don't have that culture where it's like, hey, that lieutenant, the second lieutenant, even the first lieutenant is an apprentice with no real knowledge or authority. He has to kind of like 
look to a captain or some, you know, if you want yeah. something to happen. And a captain on an SF team is also an apprentice. <laughs> so, yeah. hey, welcome to the shit show, brother. Like, go sit in the corner with your crayons, make something happen. Uh, when we need you to talk to the major or the colonel, we'll send you up there and don't fuck it up. And, like, I don't think that's necessarily productive um, in straightening up culture when officers are looked at that way. When it's like, hey, I mean, if you want an easier cultural rudder change, it's important that the officers have credibility and authority. And um, I think that it would benefit our organization to to take a look at how officers look. And I don't have... I don't like officers. Don't get me wrong. As an NCO, I feel obligated to say that out loud. I fucking hate <laughs> all of them. Thank you for inviting me. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Man. I'm glad I started you're off here. as a private. Come <laughs> well, on. You're out now, so I can I can be like, man, you sound like you're a really great guy. I'm glad we didn't have to work together. Or I'd be forced to tell you you were a shithead. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, like to say universally officers suck, like it's a great place for me to start. But, you know, there's been a few that proved me wrong. But I definitely think that when it I think the expectations for officers in the, in the Army are set so low that, you know, like bare minimum performance is acceptable as opposed to being like, hey, man, you need to come in here and perform. You need to set the don't come in and just say this is how things are going to be. I've seen plenty of officers do that and that yeah. doesn't work. But understand the culture, understand the environment and say, hey, I think that these are problems within your in this organization that I think we should fix together. Like you guys are the ones that drive training. You guys are the ones that drive the culture. I think that if we do this, if we do a we are going to accomplish Z. And I think that the overall unit will be better. And for guys to say, okay, I can accept that. And I will make a sacrifice to what I've been used to doing yep. to create a better It's a difference between outcome. managing and leading. Right? Getting that buy-in is yep. key. So you, you're right. And you know what? Here's something that flies in the face of what we all learn about positive leadership. You cannot do that. When the culture's gone bad, you can't turn it around through positive leadership alone. Because you because need punitive, that you need because action. <laughs> no no the rank because the dudes the rank and file have to see positive behavior reinforced but they also have to see the the violators get severely punished. All right, let's talk about for instance what happened in um, Mali, right? You know the the yeah oh, all so, all the wrong people being punished. You mean? Well, no, no, no. I'm not talking about Niger 2017. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about the. Uh, oh, you talk about Logan um, Melgar. Yeah, yeah, Logan Melgar, right? So Logan's one of my students. So. Yeah. So I mean, uh, horrific. Anyone who you know reads that story, it, it, I think uh, would agree it's horrific. Now, the Marine. Uh, I believe so. Two two guys have already gone to trial, right? It was Matthews, one seal and one Marshall. Yeah. So Matthews got one year, and Maxwell got four years. They both got a. Uh, they got uh, plea deals of some variety. Yeah, exactly. Yep. But but my point is this: so uh, both Matthews and Maxwell were fairly highly thought of in their community. Certainly, Maxwell was within Marsoc. Here he is. You know, he's done something. By in his own admission in the trial that that was that was fucked up to the exponential degree, yep. and now he's being punished for it. He's losing everything that that made his identity right. You know, Marine being a Mossock dude, uh, and, and the key thing there is making that sort of story a a parable for everyone else, bringing in the Maxwells and the Matthews to say, "Hey, dudes, here's what I did." You know, that may sound trite, but it's not because because they were, they, you, you know, the way this works. They, they, these guys are looked up to and everyone says, hey, if he's doing that sort of stuff, this guy's a stud. 
If he's doing that sort of stuff, that must be okay. I don't give a shit what officers say, as you would say, Doug. You know, I understand. <laughs> I understand that goes on. They're looking to the senior enlisted or the enlisted guys, the guys who are the, uh, you know, the, the kind of the icons within their culture. What are they doing? So when those icons run into problems, it makes sense to bring them back as as part of this shifting of culture and say, so hey, what, you know what, guys? This was not – I so, really fucked up. So what you're saying is that – presidential pardons for war criminals. Oh, my God. Let's not go right. there, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that takes that takes that yanks the rug out from under all of our feet. That well, and I case. mean, it's funny in that situation without naming any names when I as someone with a significant, I mean, a relatively significant amount of soft experience working jointly. Um, I look at that situation and I think to myself, like, I, I look at both sides of the story where two petulant groups of people are pointing their fingers at each other. And I think people that see the story are like, well, one side's right and one side's wrong and I have to choose a side. And I'm going to sit here and say both sides were wrong, that the, the, the subordinates that were trying to, you know, undermine and, you know, expel a senior guy over, over a bunch of concerns, the way they went about it was wrong. And they were probably cunty little, you know, cowards as he viewed them. Also, he was totally wrong in everything he was doing and setting a bad example and, you know, being like, but because there was this weird dynamic where the subordinates didn't have a relationship with the senior, I, I, I can only assume he felt a need to up his behavior over and over again to demonstrate leadership and bravery and like this, like kind of weird, soft uh, like thing, Doug. We're gonna pop. We're gonna part ways on this one. I think. I'm not saying that there's a free pass yeah. on him. I'm saying that like I think that the bad behavior was doubled down on because he felt like he had to. He had to have people respect him because he was in this senior position. And I think that all of them should have been punished in a variety of ways. I mean, I don't think that we should punish whistleblowers, but I think that the command the officers that were in charge were responsible for seeing this toxic spiraling thing and removing him. Couldn't agree more with that. Okay, so the guys, yeah, absolutely. I I would argue that that particular individual was probably a shithead from day one. I heard a very interesting story that will not be spoken of in this podcast, but do not forget. You can't do that, man. So do not, I will not. What about having special subscribers who can listen to Doug's story <laughs> afterwards? So this is 100% specious. I will tell the story then. but And I won't name any names, but we will say... You're uh, not supposed to say 100% specious. You're supposed to say this is a no-shitter. This is Subscribe to Doug's Patreon account. This is rumint, and I can't wait for people to get... Uh, I, honestly, if this story is bullshit i would love for someone to prove hey, it wrong quit the disclaimers man just i someone i, I thought this was if like a navy a seal was attached to an oda in a time frame in afghanistan on a specific mission and was kicked off the team for what was viewed as like literally bounced and said no more yeah you're not attached no one remembers his name bounced off the team for what are viewed as bordering on war crimes for shooting civilians in a non-tick situation um, and what if the team leader of said team was actually convicted of murdering Afghan civilians as well? Are and that these me? two paths crossed at some point really? in the 2010 time frame. Was it, that was about 2010, wasn't it? 2012, maybe. 2012. Mm-hmm. Either way, to say that those, those notorious individuals crossed paths and that this pattern of behavior existed previously and was not identified by command or eradicated or followed through, again, is a failure of command to say, hey, this person did a bad thing, but the 
our culture, the way we look at yeah. things is yeah. to protect each other and say, hey, no, no American soft guy deserves to go to prison for something that they did to an Afghan That's or an right, Iraqi. for killing an indigenous. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe they're all bad guys. Like that attitude yeah. is or, what... Or at least they are different than us. We are, we, we're all brothers, right? Yep. And so... We have to protect each other. Exactly, no matter what. It's a motorcycle gang. It's not a freaking premier military unit. That's right. And to view it that way is, I mean, honestly, it's super perilous. Yeah. I mean, like I have been fairly... I, I am a filthy SF guy. I have done plenty of things that I should have gotten punished for. But as I've gotten older, I've been like, man, I took a lot of risks and I did a lot of things that I shouldn't have done. And like, while I, I can meter those things now and guide guys, but like, hey man, these are ways to do things. These are ways not to do things. Um, like, I definitely think that if, if I had had to ride the lightning for things I did, I would have deserved it. And I would not have been mad at the chain of command for being like, you're setting a bad example. And yeah. we are going to, we are going to use you as the example for why people shouldn't do this. Yeah. But I'm, I got the mission done and there people were like, that's more important than how you did it. Yeah. But you're not talking, you know, there's a difference between taking shortcuts, breaking rules and stuff that is just plain wrong, wrong. Agreed. You know, and I think all of us, know where that we're not all of us i think it's why that 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 line it's why there's a problem with sexual assault in the military because these this quote-unquote brotherhood doesn't it it leaves people uncertain of how to handle uncomfortable situations where they have to confront someone with a punishable offense that's right like hey maybe it was nuanced and i've been in that kind of situation and i wouldn't want to be railroaded and you're like no man bad behavior is bad behavior and should be fucking punished yeah period it's fucking wrong you know i mean we but we we don't we don't do a really good job of that (laughs) no no we don't and and so when really bad things happen you're right it's it didn't just happen in isolation suddenly you you have to look back over the years it was built over time yeah so Andy, what is next for you? What comes after it? You know, now that the books come out, obviously, hopefully the book's a huge success. You mean and you're not going to bring me into the soft lead team? I hey thought man. that's why I'm here. T- Jesus Doug's Christ! In an interview. Dude, I Doug's can't wait. New officers role. So. I can't wait for Worth <laughs> to hear this podcast and be like, "Man, I sent Andy over there, and he's fucking me over." That's my job. Uh, that's you know, that's a again another another great question, Aaron. The mm-hmm. boy, I don't know. So here's where I am right now, all right? I just, uh, yes, I wrote this book. We'll see how it does. Hopefully, by the way, I researched this. This is absolutely true. Top, the top 10 best-selling combat memoirs in the last two decades were all written by SEALs. I believe it. So all of you in listener, in soft lead listener land. You will sell at least 10 books gotta, off this you've, podcast. Yeah, you've <laughs> hey, help me, man. Help me redress the balance. So anyway, I, you know, I mean, this isn't, I really enjoyed writing. I do want to go ahead and, and continue writing. I don't for a moment think I can make a living out of it, but it doesn't matter to me. I do want to do that. You never know. Yeah. I, I love my current job right now. And this is a plug for a joint special operations university going overseas, teaching in Africa. It gives me, it's kind of, it's not as it's not as cool as what you guys do, uh, but it is nevertheless a great thing for a retired soft guy. It's you, a great thing, we, and yeah, to say it's so not as cool, we're, we're not that cool. So I'm working with, uh, you know, I'm working with soft officers, and regardless of nationality, they're all kind of the same guys, whether they're Ukrainians or from Niger or from Tunisia. Great dudes. They're hungry to learn, and they're all involved in the fight, and so. 
that gives me a chance to continue to contribute as trade. That may sound that's important I don't to think me. That sounds trade at all. And it's cool being able to travel to those places. And what's really cool is when I'm not traveling, I'm at home and I'm seeing the kids off to school and, you know, just. No, it's the best. Yeah. I mean, it's so I, I have no complaints as long as that keeps me, keeps me alive. And unless there are lawsuits that follow from this particular podcast. I oh, think they'll only continue. be directed at me, Andy. Don't worry. I hope like, so. Right? Yeah. Listen, I'll, have to deal with, uh, I'll have to deal with all the virulent and Navy SEAL attorneys Are soon. You, do you have a website, social media? Where can we find you? Okay, so my uh, my Twitter. Thank you for, again, thank you, Aaron. Awesome. For. Andy Milburn, M-I-L-B-U-R-N, eight is my Twitter. Handle yeah. is the catchy phrase, right? So it's at Andy Milburn, eight. Please follow me. I, I do put out stuff that I think is worth reading. At least I enjoy reading it. Uh, and, um, You're not supposed to laugh at your own jokes, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And I'm on, uh, I'm, I'm on uh, LinkedIn and, and also in, uh, on, on Facebook. And I think I'm a pretty engaging dude on, on social media. I don't take pictures of my food and post right. those. On, I, uh, I was pleasantly surprised uh, from the second that you were willing to roast uh, general officers and then go down the rabbit hole of like what's fucking wrong with the world. I was like, this dude's all right. I fucking dig this. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how you were promoted to the rank of 06 in the Marine Corps. I tell you, that is a constant mystery to me, too. I'm very, uh, you know, I get asked, hey, why, how come you didn't make general officer with, with the commands that I had? I, that, is very clearly apparent to me why I didn't make general officer. <laughs> and, and I've got to tell you, if, if I had been offered that, I probably would have taken it. I've got to be honest with you because I was a company man. Yep. You know, you get, you get steeped in it. You remember that? You, it, it's not necessarily that you are, you are filthy ambitious. Filthy ambitious is when you disregard everything else to get ahead. But sure. nevertheless, all of us like being promoted. And all of us, I think... Again, I'm generalizing, but, you know, if you're offered that by the organization that you've dedicated your life to, you, I mean, it's a serious thing if you say, no, I, I don't want it. So I probably would have accepted it, and I probably would have been miserable, frankly, as a general officer. How I made colonel, I can't answer that question. You guys are going to have to read the book and see how fortunate I was. There you go. <laughs> I, I, talked to a, I talked to an 04 friend of mine. Um, I mean, uh, sorry, a... Uh, um, yeah, he, if, he was, if he was an no, officer, not, he couldn't have been not, a friend of yours. Not an 04, a, yeah. uh, a, a four-star or a three-star general uh, like who basically told me that as long as he'd been in the military, that every problem that he wanted to fix existed one echelon That's a great way him. to put it. it and does. I was like, that was literally the statement he gave me that made me decide that going to OCS was a total waste of my time. I was like, you know what, man? I'm just going to sit here and change the world as an E7 as best I can. And, uh, you know, like I'm just going to enjoy it. And I just thought to myself, I was like, how, how demoralizing is it to be like at the top of your field, killing it and, and still feel like the problems you want to fix are unfixable because of people just above you. Yeah. I'm sure there's only some truth to that. I do. I mean, when I, 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 I think there's probably tremendous truth in that. So when it, when I was at Sox Scent and, and I, that, that was a terrific job. I worked with extraordinary people. I was in 06, which isn't that exalted, but I felt I, I felt powerless at times to get things done. But to my point, you know, when you look at the SOCOM 
commander and the CENTCOM commander and some of the frustrations that they deal with, you know, I mean, look at the, the decision to pull out of Syria, for instance, you know, and that took that took both those guys by surprise. I'm pretty sure only JSOC was upset by that and a whole bunch of Trump voters. But that's a different topic altogether. <laughs> Duck for president. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the PKK. But, you know, like, uh, who are they? <laughs> well... <laughs> Different, oh, so you think we should? Oh, you're talking about we we should have. You think we should have done that? Uh, I have. We have a nuance. This is a, this is a separate conversation. Oh, I yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. I have a. It was this no, is, the way we did we it. We literally had a conversation about it the other day. I I tend to think the way we did it was pulling the rug out from yeah. people who we'd established as allies. We had to do it sooner or later. I but remain, it could have been a deliberate I decision. Unconvinced that the people that we've labeled are faithful and fearless allies are as 100% good as they're oh, of course not. as being. No, no, no. No, there were good pragmatic reasons, though, to make it more of a deliberate decision. That's the way I would put it. Yeah. I'm not... No, I certainly was hasty. Yeah. I'll say that. I, I'm not a... Uh, you, you know, I'm a realist. And, and one of the problems that, you know, we talk about partnering yep. with Partner Nation Force, and we always we're always walking a line, right? Because as a human being... You've got to feel respect and affection for them. You've got to develop that. But the other part of you, which is the U.S. the U.S. officer part, always has to be conscious that there is often a narrow area on that shaded Venn diagram. Tell me if I'm losing you with no, this. No, you're, you're 100% yeah. right. You know, that, that, that a shared interest. And when that area no longer exists, that partnership is over. And yeah. I, I think that, that, that in my opinion... Uh, certainly, which is worth about two cents. Um, the uh, the share the shared interest existed for certain particular units only, yeah. and that like from a strategic standpoint, like a, was it wrong from a moral standpoint? Possibly, but from a from a strategic interest standpoint, uh, it was it was no longer necessarily a sustainable relationship in the region. I mean, the region's super complex, and everybody's at each other's throats. And for us to continue to to pit people against each other to maintain a JRTC forward for a specific for specific units that want to have a playground to test their training in a real world like you know environment yeah. is, I mean, I I think it's why we should be leaving Afghanistan. I think it's why we yeah. should, you know. I, I don't fault what you just said, Doug. I, I absolutely understand. I, you know, and again, I, I know it's a separate conversation. I, I just think, again, that there was a more deliberate way to do that. Oh, I understand. For sure. I'm I agree with that. you, man. I understand exactly what you're saying on that, that, they, that it had become kind of a pet project for certain units. And, and, that, and, and that shouldn't be allowed to get in the way of national interest. Well, and I think that a lot of those guys had really close relationships with the players involved. And That's it was right. very emotional for them. Like, That's I mean, right. it was. It was very yeah. emotional. And I get it. And I do. And we've, I, all, we've all had those relationships. I feel that way the about the Barzanis time. and, yeah. you know, the KRG guys really have a, I have a huge bond with those guys. And I still am like, hey, at a certain point, they made a bad play on the referendum. And the logical outcome of a free Carter state occurred because they rushed the process. Yeah. And you know, like I feel bad for them not having an independent state, but I also am like, hey, what did what did you want the US to do? What in, you were warned. Yeah. You were told this is something that we can't so we can't support right now. But I mean, I feel worse for them than I do for uh, you know, the, the SDF, SDF yeah. which is an organization com created completely out of thin air to, you know, 
Oh, we, some of the we were, yeah, we we were walking a fine line. There. Yeah. There's, there's no there's no doubt about it. And, and I'm no fan of the Turks um, either. So it's not like I'm sitting here going, man, those Turks are you know blameless. It's yeah. definitely everybody in that thing's got shit on their hands. <laughs> oh yeah, us included. Yeah, for sure. But, but yeah, we uh, we 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 pulled our stakes out of the ground just a little too quickly there. This and, is a f- which is a contrast with Afghanistan, where we have <laughs> we <laughs> like. I just don't understand it. It's hard to end relationships right at the perfect time. That's that's right. Yeah, but you know, uh, somebody's got to be braver, right? I mean, it's hey. you know, you know, uh, on on the on the topic very quickly of Afghanistan. Here's one thing that troubles me about some of the discussions that uh, that I've I've read over the last few years. Yes. Yes, one of the problems that we were the, about the fact that this ridiculous war has dragged on for 19 years, 2,400 lives. With no clear definable trillion, end state. Yeah. Well, originally there was, you know, back when, you know, AUMF won, uh, defeat, defeat the Taliban, yep. remove forever, safe haven for al-Qaeda. Total victory. But, total. <laughs> yeah, but that was... That was arguably, if you know, with the with the correct resources and proper push, that could have been achieved in two thousand and four. Yep, well, two thousand three, really. Two thousand, yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. Well, since then, we we've we've been shambling along, and yes, number of factors involved in that. And I won't bore your listeners over this. Yes, disengaged Congress, disengaged public, which you know, lack of because no universal service. Don't worry, I'm not arguing for the draft. But that means that the public doesn't give a shit, and that means that Congress doesn't care about about oversight of foreign policy. And so AOMF-1 has remained in effect for 19 years, and the war is just trolled along. But I tell you who else who I really hold responsible for this, a succession of four-star, three-star, and four-star leaders. You look, you look at, at all the platitudes that they have mouthed over the course of the last decade, just, you know, one more push, the Taliban's on the ropes. And, and and I'm being cynical here, but in every case, it was kind of a resume builder for it for them, right? It's not cynical. That is 100. It, it, it was it was their touch point to go to higher places, and they had to prove themselves. And instead of saying, "What are our objectives? Tell me what our objectives are," no and I'll one tell knows. you how to get there. Exactly. And so here we are, 19 years later. And, and and you know, there's still people mouthing platitudes about, "Well, this isn't going to last." It's like. I mean, honestly, I mean, I'll draw uh, an apt but <laughs> greatly simplified comparison. Um, we have sowed graft and fraud and abuse into the Afghani government. We have we have continued. We have we have watered the seeds of of you know absolute freaking. Um, you know, oh, corruption yeah. Yeah. in the Afghan government, and we haven't set them up with a clear, popularly accepted government that is supported and makes people feel like they're heard and empowered. Outside As opposed to Iraq, where we have created a process where we may not like it as Americans, but we have we we established a common rule of law where all the ethnic groups felt represented in some capacity, and they elected people that we hate. Yeah, <laughs> that that's hate right. Us. Yeah. And and you know what? Like, good for them. Like, yeah. I view I view U.S. lack of influence in Iraq as a victory for the democratic process 
in the Middle East. That's and if, right. If ISIS it, served as glue to bring those ethnic groups together and feel like they have a national identity, like even more of a success for that region. Well, that story's not over yet. Nope. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I agree with that, with, with the, you know, that, that, that viewpoint. Uh, the, the only thing that concerns me is, is perhaps is my, my worry that we might see concern to the bad old Maliki days where sunny disenfranchisement oh, doesn't yeah. go away and it sows the seeds of even more well, trouble. The, the pendulum swings. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, we've, we've, but in the end, you have genuine Iraqi nationalism right now. Which is insane to me. When I went back in 17, I was like, no, are they serious? Yeah. No, the guy but I told mean, me, we'll never kill each other again. I'm like, you're full of shit. Yeah, well, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. But I mean, there's, you, you can see that there is, there is at least a sense of, a popular sense of nationalism that is anti-American, but it's also anti-Iranian. Yep. And, no, I, and that's, I love it. I think it's yeah, great. So, I mean, that's not unhealthy. Uh, Andy, Sorry, Aaron, I keep it. I was thinking of interrupting. Hands, no. hands down, the best podcast guest we've ever had. This was awesome. I heard you say that shit before. No, I've, no, I've literally this never. Awesome. I have literally never really, said that before. This is awesome. Right. I really enjoyed it. Really appreciate you making the trip up. When the Tempest Gathers, available Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Uh, yeah, Amazon. Uh, and, uh, and again, you know, uh, all, all of your listeners, if, you, if you're trying to decide whether to buy um, Doug and Aaron's supplements or a T-shirt or my book, <laughs> uh, please, you know, I mean, you've got to Def- feed your mind too, right? Definitely buy the book. Yeah, yeah definitely buy the, buy the book. book. Yeah, When the it'll, Tempest it'll Gathers. It'll a much better human being than putting on a software <laughs> T-shirt. That is for sure. Hey, it's been a great pleasure, guys. Thanks very much. Until next time. <laughs>